Welcome to episode 102 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, uh, whom I've actually already interviewed, uh, but who will, uh, whose interview will appear after our news roundup. Uh, uh, Glenn Gerstel is the new general counsel of the National Security Agency after a long and distinguished career in private practice. Uh, and he gives us his um, first detailed uh, interview on uh, uh, what it's like to move from private practice to the National Security Agency. Uh, we're also joined uh, by regulars, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office, by Alan Cohn, formerly head of strategy for DHS and now of counsel at Steptoe, uh, uh, and Stephen Heifetz, uh, a partner in our international regulation and compliance group. Uh, um, who does a lot of CFIUS work and uh, whom I hired at DHS to do the CFIUS work. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe more times to uh, practice law than any other lawyer. So let's jump right in. Uh, the uh, It looks like we're going to be talking about this case for the foreseeable future. That's the Apple uh, confrontation with the Justice Department and the FBI. Uh, I do want to say something that I tweeted out today. Um, you know, it's important that the war on terror not become a war against one of the world's greatest religions. And, and uh, I think we all can agree that uh, uh, at bottom, Apple is a religion of peace. <laughs> uh, but um, that said, the Justice Department has filed a very tough uh, response uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, Apple's uh, kind of unprecedented uh, uh, brief in the form of a letter to its customers. Uh, uh, Michael, did you look at the, uh, uh, the Justice Department uh, filing? Yeah, it was interesting because it was an unnecessary filing. I mean, the, the government made its application for an order under the All Writs Act compelling Microsoft to provide assistance. Uh, the court granted the order but gave uh, um, Apple to provide assistance. The court granted the, the order uh, but gave Apple a chance to explain why it shouldn't have to respond. Uh, but before Apple has filed that, that it's brief, the government uh, went ahead and filed a motion to compel that basically reiterates what was in its original application, but expresses its frustration, I think, to the fact that so far Apple hasn't really addressed the law on this, but has just issued a public relations uh, uh, statement from the CEO, ex- uh, taking the position that the government's seeking a backdoor to Microsoft, uh, to I keep saying Microsoft, to Apple's encryption. Um, uh, and the government saying that's not what we're doing at all. We're seeking basic assistance, the sort of assistance Apple has provided in the past. There's nothing new about this. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, Apple should have to comply just like other companies have had to comply in the past with similar requests. I think the, the Justice Department is frustrated that um – uh, Apple's message, which is, I agree is, is uh, disingenuous uh, about how this means uh, you're really creating a backdoor and it'll, it'll mean the end of Internet security for all, um, that that message is getting surprising traction. I, I still think Apple's losing this fight, but uh, uh, the Justice Department must be appalled at the way in which this is being served up, especially in the technical press, as uh, uh, basically the equivalent of demanding a backdoor. Sure. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, I, there was, I, to me, a little bit of uh, a change in messaging this morning in a statement that Apple issued, uh, in which it starts to address a little bit more uh, the law under the All Writs Act and, and gets a, away a little bit from this notion of a backdoor. I mean, the, the issue under the All Writs Act is whether the government's request would impose an unreasonable burden on the company. And to date, Apple hasn't explained why this would be an unreasonable burden, at least in conventional terms. Its, its notion of the burden is that, hey, this is going to really uh, mess up uh, our marketing uh, as a company that cares about privacy and, and security, and this is going to hurt us with our customer base. And there are cases that, that have uh, held that that's the sort of burden that courts should be concerned about. They're really 
you know, they, they ask whether the company would, would have to uh, take on great costs or change its uh, change its whole uh, technology or things like that. And Apple to date hasn't really put the burden in those sorts of terms. We'll have to wait and see what it ultimately files and whether it addresses those sorts of burdens or not. But its public statements have not really put its argument in those terms. I think the, 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 their decision to, to put this on those grounds really opens them up to a lot of discovery, either from the Justice Department in this case or, quite frankly, uh, from the Judiciary Committees and uh, the Intelligence Committees uh, in Congress. Uh, uh, I think somebody should ask them what they spent to build a data center in China so that the Chinese would have ready access to all of the Chinese iPhone data, uh, uh, what they spent to build in the special Wi-Fi encryption chip that only uh, China knows the contents of, uh, but which apparently has been installed on large numbers of iPhones and uh, other uh, Apple products sold in China. Uh, everything that they spent on that was designed to provide access to a different government, uh, and if they were willing to do that for other governments, uh, comparing the relative burden might turn out to be uh, uh, productive, at least for those of us who think that they're hyping the burden. Uh, um, so that will be uh, that will be a, an interesting topic. Uh, we know that uh, they're going to file something probably on Friday of this week, and so we'll get to talk about it next week as well. So I'm not going to dwell on uh, uh, Apple. Instead, I, I thought I'd uh, uh, ask Stephen to talk to us a little bit about CFIUS. Uh, uh, this is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, uh, uh, which puts out an annual report about a year and a half late every year. Uh, Every year, they've put out a uh, an annual report that tells us uh, how CFIUS was administered a couple of years ago, and we've seen a lot of um, stories recently suggesting that uh, as the renminbi declines and uh, Chinese nationals begin to worry about whether they can ever get their money out of China, uh, buying stuff, buying companies in the United States has become much more popular, uh, uh, and uh, consequently. Uh, 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 Chinese cases where investments are being reviewed have gotten a lot of scrutiny and a lot of uh, flack. Uh, uh, Stephen, what can we what can we tell from the CFIUS report? Sure. Well, that uh, that report was issued to Congress just last week. It covers uh, years up through the end of 2014. And you're right, uh, they reported that for the years 2012 through 2014, Chinese companies went through the CFIUS review process more than companies. From any other country, uh, that wasn't new. It's uh, as the report indicates, it's been that way uh, in each of the last three years. Um, but that has coincided. That report has coincided with a number of very large Chinese acquisitions of and, a, and attempted acquisitions of U.S. companies, headlined uh, by the ChemChina. Uh, proposed acquisition of Syngenta for a mere $43 billion. Uh, there have been some other significant uh, announcements. HNA's proposed acquisition of Ingram Micro uh, at $6 billion. Uh, Zoom Lions uh, bid uh, for crane maker Terex at $3.3 billion looks paltry. Um, in these cases, CFIUS will be conducting reviews, and sometimes these deals do founder on national security concerns. Lots, lots of them do, don't they? Well, I think it's it's not clear. Um, you know, the report doesn't uh, describe the um, what happens. That CFIUS's report uh, provides raw numbers, but they don't provide what happens uh, in each case, at least not by name. CFIUS indicated that there were 12 uh, applications for CFIUS review that were withdrawn, and only one of them was refiled. Which means they were basically turned down, right? Or or that the government set such strict mitigation requirements that uh, the the acquirer said, well, I'm not going to do it if that's the price. That's uh, probably the best interpretation, but not the only one. CFIUS uh, is quick to say, look, deals can fall apart and withdrawals from CFIUS can happen for a variety of reasons. Uh, it can turn out just not to be commercially practical. But certainly uh, 11 makes you wonder, uh, 11 withdrawals without refiling do suggest 
that CFIUS may be proposing mitigation terms uh, that make the deal uh, not practical. So very, it looks like uh, a um, an administration that has decided to hang pretty tough on uh, national security issues. And while we don't know for sure that these were all Chinese deals, it's a good bet that most of them are, right? Well, uh, certainly that a significant number. That's right. We don't know uh, which were Chinese deals. And that's a record, isn't it? 11 uh, uh, failures to return after withdrawal? I think it's a record by one uh, well, a couple hey, of years ago. I, I keep reading in the in the press that uh, we're setting global warming records when it turns out that it's one-tenth of one degree. So it's a record, right? Well, that, fair, fair enough. I think, you know, the, uh, much of the press has suggested that this reflects uh, a, a more aggressive CFIUS. I'm not sure that's right. Again, uh, we don't know which uh, which companies, which countries uh, these withdrawals um, affect. Um, I think that the continuing uh, significance in the number of Chinese deals reviewed is uh, that that this probably reflects uh, sophistication on the part of Chinese companies. That is, they understand that most of the time the CFIUS risks are manageable and that they're better off filing with CFIUS than trying to evade CFIUS review. So let me let me, let me try for a pro tip uh, on uh, watching uh, uh, CFIUS cases. Uh, it used to be that uh, whenever the government just wanted more time, they said, why don't you withdraw and refile? And many of those cases were approved. Uh, this year, practically all the cases that were withdrawn weren't refiled. Uh, um, so the, my, my proposed pro tip, which you can uh, uh, criticize if you like, is uh, – if you see that a case has been withdrawn, somebody announces we've withdrawn uh, and uh, uh, may refile, uh, there's a good chance that uh, case will never be refiled and that transaction is uh, toast. I think that's a fair implication to draw. Um, it, it used to be the case that reasons for withdrawals included um, mitigation terms that were served up by CFIUS very late in the uh, in the CFIUS process and uh, so late that it required the companies to withdraw and refile in order to buy, to buy more time and it's it's probably the case that CFIUS is uh, teeing up some of these terms earlier and they're just so unappealing that the parties at least in a number of cases say forget it. All right, um, two other matters that I wanted to catch quickly before we jump into the uh, uh, interview. One, uh, uh, and this is um, something that actually happened uh, about a week ago, uh, uh, Google has announced that they are knuckling under even further to uh, European data protection sensors, uh, uh, the people who say there are uh, f- true facts that have to be forgotten, and uh, Google is in charge of forgetting them. Uh, um, uh, Google has accepted that since it's the law of Europe uh, for Google.fr, Google.co.uk, and the like. Uh, and uh, both the British and the um, uh, uh, French authorities said not good enough. Uh, you have to make sure that if they go, if people go to Google.com, they also can't find uh, these true facts that we believe should be suppressed. I uh, uh, and <clears throat> Google has finally agreed they're going to do that, but uh, only after they've determined that the person who's doing the search is located inside the EU. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that is. Uh, about the best compromise we could have expected, but uh, it remains to be seen whether uh, uh, the European authorities will accept that or whether what they really want to do is make sure that Americans can't read these facts. Uh, I think and it's, it's even slightly, slightly more limited than that even. It's, it's that they're going to block it uh, if the person searching for the term is in the uh, country where the complaint was filed, so not throughout the whole EU. Ah, okay. Okay, that's interesting. So we'll see. I, I think the, the French will not be satisfied. Um, the UK uh, ICO might be, but even that, I think, uh, we'll have to wait and see. It must be suppressed everywhere French is spoken. <laughs> Which should be everywhere. <laughs> Which, of course, is everywhere. Um, okay, well, Michael, uh, last topic I wanted to uh, jump on was um, we've been covering from time to time the fact that the FBI – 
took over Playpen, this this uh, big um, uh, pedophile uh, uh, dark web uh, server, and collected all the IP addresses of the people who logged into it for a couple of uh, weeks. Uh, now there's a judicial ruling that says the people who are now being prosecuted for child porn uh, are able to review the uh, source code of the uh, uh, the programs that the FBI was using to intercept their IP addresses and perhaps uh, to do other uh, things with the Playpen site. Did you take a look at that? Yeah, apparently the, the court has ordered the FBI to turn over the, the entire code. They, they had originally provided some of the code, but uh, according at least to defense counsel, they didn't provide everything. They, they, they left out the code uh the part of this network investigative technique that was used to, to break into the defendant's computer uh, and another piece that was used to ensure that the identifier issued to his computer was, was truly unique. So I think what the defense is looking for is uh, more ammunition to argue that the, the technique violated the Fourth Amendment rights of the defendant because it, because it was somehow unreasonable or was... Uh, or that allowed a search that was excessively broad and, and general. Do you mind my? <clears throat> do you mind if I say, "Give me a break"? They are looking to make it as painful as possible for the FBI to have used this tactic and to make it harder for them to use it again by exposing what the code says, so that people can build uh, defenses against it. Don't you think that's at least as plausible an explanation as their belief that this is uh, violating their Fourth Amendment rights? Uh, no, you know, I tend to think a federal public defender is interested in defending his client and All not right. interested in making some, some political statement. Now, that, that might be EFF or the ACLU's goal, but, but federal public defender, I mean, I think they're, they're focused on performing their task, which is to defend their clients. All right. And, and now just let me, uh, uh, uh Alan has, Alan Cohn has, uh, very kindly come to the uh, podcast and hasn't said a word. So uh, as I'm trying to wrap this up, uh, uh, Alan, you'll have the last word. You want to comment on this case or on the uh, the Apple controversy? It's up to you. Well, I'm going to wrap it together. All right. That. Stay tuned to see this issue make an appearance in Apple's brief on Friday, um, which is that uh, that, again, there is a cabining, an intent to cabin uh, an approach to a particular case, but that this kind of a technique to produce the source code, to produce the, the, the manner and the techniques in which something was obtained um, is, you know, it looms out there as a, uh, as a potential bookend on the, on the case of, of what happens when you try to bring the evidence to trial in the San Bernardino case. And so, uh, so I would not be surprised to see this argument have a uh, have a place if not a prominent place in, in the brief well you know i all i can say is um we're ready i'm i'm enthusiastic about a discovery battle because i think apple has more to lose from a discovery battle than the justice department but uh you're right uh, so why don't we uh move on i know the glenn gerstel uh, interview runs a little long so uh, i'd like to jump into it uh, right now so our guest today is Glenn Gerstel. Uh, Glenn is the new general counsel in the next, in the last six months uh, of the National Security Agency. Uh, uh, comes to uh, the National Security Agency with a long and distinguished career in public in private practice, uh, uh, serving in multiple countries and managing uh, uh, partner for uh, Milbank's office here in Washington for 18 years. Is that right, Glenn? That's right. Um, had a uh career in the private sector for um, almost four decades and then made a big switch uh, doing this. And first, just let me say, uh, Stuart, that uh, I'm really delighted to be here. Um, uh, you've had uh, well over, I guess, over a 100 of these uh, podcasts yes. um, with uh, interesting guests and uh, engaged in some thoughtful and useful dialogue. And constantly you've been raising the bar successively over the, the course of the first hundred of these. So I just want to applaud your strategy here in having a brand newcomer uh, come in who's, um, who's uh, 
authorized to say uh, very little and knows even less uh, in, in the case of me. And so it's sort of like a stock split. You know, when a corporation gets its stock too high, they sort of split it to bring it down to more manageable levels. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of your strategy here to reset the bar for the second hundred. Uh, well, of, uh, those. I was heavily influenced by a guy named John Markoff, who's a, mm-hmm. a, a New York Times technology reporter who was reporting on me when I was at NSA. And he would write occasionally these <laughs> outrageous stories that were biased and wrong and uh, uh, put the worst Cast on, cast on NSA's behavior possible. And I would occasionally call him up and say, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't have said this. And he would always say to me, oh, Stuart, maybe you're right. Uh, um, I tell you what, next time you've got a story, bring it to me and I'll make it up to you by uh, uh, covering that story. And I thought to myself, this is great. He gets two stories out of this. So I, if you screw up because you're new, um, we'll bring you back. Uh, and you can make up for anything you, uh, you do wrong on the first uh, uh, interview. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> okay, um, so... You've you've already kicked off your uh, uh, tenure at NSA by um, uh, doing something that took me probably a year and a half to do, which is to write something publicly about your job and, and about NSA's uh, uh, interests. And that was the uh, um, a piece you wrote for Lawfare about uh, 215 and implementation of 215. This is the program that was uh, famously uh, 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 disclosed by uh, Snowden, provoked a big fuss, led to the uh, uh, USA Freedom Act, uh, uh, and has provoked a lot of attention in the uh, presidential campaign because uh, um, uh, uh, Senator Rubio criticized Senator Cruz for not having uh, uh, insisted on a tougher uh, and more effective alternative to the old uh, metadata program. Um, And um, inadvertently, I'm sure, your uh, uh, op-ed for Lawfare bailed Senator Cruz out by saying, no, we actually believe that um, we're going to get more data, and we can make this work quickly, even though the data is going to be stored not on our servers, but on uh, uh, the telcos uh, servers. Uh, And I I, I thought I'd ask about that, because I do think it's a little implausible that we can do better searches if we're talking about trying to combine data from multiple telcos, uh, that we can do this without... uh, uh, disclosing information that we don't want to ex- uh, disclose uh, if we have to give all of our uh, most sensitive ter- terrorist overseas numbers to the uh, uh, the telcos. Uh, so uh, maybe you could explain how you think, to the extent you can, how you think this will work and how it is working. Uh, I think you said you're going to report to Congress on uh, how it's working. So if you can give us a, a sneak peek of that report, we'd be very grateful. Sure. Well, let me let me go back to uh, take a step back to the article. You know, I, I joined the agency in August, and it was right in the midst of its effort to uh, implement the the new Freedom Act, uh, which had been passed just a couple months beforehand. And there was a rather short deadline for the implementation of it by the end of November. So when I joined, uh, I joined the agency in the throes of this this uh, very significant effort to, to change the technology, the architecture, the, some of the systems, although so many, some things stay the same. We'll talk about that in a second. And um, I wasn't really planning as a new general counsel on writing anything initially the first several months or even, even the first year, but I felt I had a ringside seat almost uh, to watch the development of this by, by some very talented technical people at the agency uh, as well as at, at some of the, the, the service providers. And um, as we approached the implementation date, and it was clear that this was going to be a successful implementation, um, I realized, uh, and there was so much confusion in the press about exactly what mm-hmm. was going on, that I thought uh, it, it, it really just made sense to write a, a short summary of this. And needless to say, I wasn't trying to uh, inject myself <laughs> into the presidential <laughs> campaign in the slightest. Um, but uh, I guess I'd say a couple things. Um, first, I, 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 our, our sense is that the... Um, <clears throat> Just in terms of sheer operations, uh, the um, the new Freedom Act operations are, are working as the statute intended, as Congress intended. Um, it obviously represents a change in the sense, as you correctly state, that the uh, government is now no longer holding telephone metadata, but the providers are, and NSA is is giving 
queries to the telephone providers who, who get that information. But it's important to remember what stays the same uh, in the program, uh, and it, uh, which is to say that um, we still have a, um, the, the exact same standard legal standard for getting telephone number for deciding which telephone numbers right. are supposed to be uh, uh, used for this. We still have the what's called the reasonable articulable suspicion, which is the words of the statute. Um, and you take that to the FISA court. And we take that to the FISA court. The, the, the FISA court hasn't changed. Indeed, if anything, there's been some extra protections built in around uh, with the Freedom Act for what the FISA court can do and how it can have a, an amicus in certain areas and some other mm-hmm. uh, steps have been taken to strengthen the role of the FISA court. But, but fundamentally, the, the process of identifying which numbers that are associated with international terrorism, again, that standard hasn't changed at all. It's, we're not, it's not hasn't opened up to anything broader than that. Uh, that hasn't changed. The system of talking to the Department of Justice and going to the court, getting a court order, having the court review it, going back, etc., all that, all that's remained unchanged. What has changed is the architecture a little bit of the system. Um, and um, as we've said, uh, uh, we'll be the first, we, the NSA, and Admiral Rogers has made this clear, our director, uh, that if we see delays or difficulties or problems associated with this, we'll, we'll be the first to go back to Congress and the American people and say we're running into some trouble. This isn't working the way it was intended. But right now, I can say that it, it appears, at least thus far, to to be working uh, the the way the statute's written. So uh, I, I had said earlier that I was a little nervous about the prospect that uh, um, now, when we identify a number associated with terrorism uh, abroad, we have to actually disclose that we know about it to anybody we want to run a, have run a search uh, uh, for the 215 program. Uh, how do you protect that information given the large number of uh, carriers in the United States? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to go into too many of the operational details, both because uh, some of them are still classified and secondly because just, as again, as a newcomer, I'm not familiar with all the details. But um, suffice it to say that we take great steps to, to at all parts of the process to, to make sure that this is handled in a, in a secure way and the, and the providers that are involved in this um, are, are fully aware of that and have, have, um, have secure systems to deal with this. And um, you also said in the in the piece we're actually getting more information from the providers that we work with uh, than uh, the old program did. Uh, um, has that proven to be true uh, over over time? You know, Stu, I, I can't really comment directly on the numbers. I just don't have a don't have a sense of that. Um, uh, I, my my understanding is that we we have the access with some of the key providers now that we've established this with. Uh, the director has said that we're, you know, looking at the extent to which we need to expand this over time, and we'll we'll, we'll take a look at that. And we'll we'll, re- we'll report to Congress as necessary. And um, when do you think you'll be reporting to Congress uh, about this? Then? Well, we've got we've got two kinds of reports. One, we have the formal reports that we're required to make under right. statute, which we absolutely will do, and that'll and that'll be that. And that, of course, we will we will do that. Uh, along with the Department of, the Department of Justice. Um, but um, we're subject, uh, NSA is subject to, as you know, extensive oversight by, uh, by, by Congress, uh, among, other, among other entities. And um, I'm sure that this topic will, uh, not only because it's a presidential campaign, but just because it's an important topic, period, uh, will, will remain uh, something that, that Congress will, will be asking questions about. So I, I should have asked this uh, early. Uh, Admiral Rogers' uh, um, Sort of took you to the end of the dock and showed you the entire uh, um, seaside that was going to be your responsibility, and then just pushed you off the end uh, um, and uh, uh, immersed you in uh, a very tense time for for NSA. Uh, let me ask: you, you obviously had some views coming in. What surprised you the most about working at uh, at NSA? Um. Well, uh, a couple of uh, things. Um, at, I, I should back up by saying that uh, <clears throat> I, I started looking for a, an opportunity to do some public service at the end of my uh, legal career. I've served almost four decades in private practice and wanted to do something in the private sector, especially in Homeland Security, where I'd been involved in some boards and commissions. And uh, I remember when I finally got the offer from uh, in, a, in the form of a phone call from Admiral Rogers, my, my first instinct that was maybe a dialed the wrong number but um, <laughs> but uh, uh, he did he did give me the offer I accepted immediately and as you said um, it uh, I joined at a time when there are a lot of challenges facing 
facing the agency. I, I, I guess my I had a couple of sort of big picture impressions uh, after the first few weeks. Um, uh, one is um, which I didn't really fully appreciate is is the caliber of the people there, and that may sound a little corny, but um, you know, there's sort of this sometimes outside the beltway this image of uh, government workers not maybe not being uh, at the absolute best and brightest. And um, uh, I, I can simply say that at the NSA, and I think broadly speaking, the intelligence community, um, we've got some terrific people there who could be earning double, triple, and quadruple their salaries if they were, whether they're off in Silicon Valley or in corporate business or whatever. And so uh, I think the, the first impression I had was just uh, uh, really amazement at the caliber of people and their dedication to mission. Um, they sound a little corny, but the, the people who work there, are, they're there because they want to be there. They think they're playing an important role in national security. Uh, I know I certainly feel that way in a very small way uh, in terms of my small role. Um, but, but it's more than just a job. So, so my first impression was, wow, these people are pretty amazing. Uh, the second big impression I had was that... Um, uh, as you said, Admiral Rogers walked me to the end of the dock, so to speak, and showed it all to me, metaphorically speaking. Uh, the, the, the second impression was that this is an awfully complicated agency. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just hadn't appreciated it as an outsider. I, I think my, my own personal view is that it may well be the most regulated agency in the United States government, bar none. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has extensive layers of Compliance and regulation, uh, well, for good reason, not not criticizing it, but I'm just that's just the nature of what it does. So it's got a lot of it's 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 complicated from the internal and external uh, compliance and oversight regimes, and it's it's complex because of of what its mission is. It, it's at the absolute, to use an overworked word, epicenter of two of the most important and dynamic challenges facing our, our government today. One is fighting terrorism, and the other is dealing with cybersecurity. So, I mean, you can't get any hotter topics mm-hmm. than that. And here we've got one agency that's doing both uh, in a very dynamic environment. So, as I said, the, the, the sheer complexity of it is, is, is quite daunting. It is, uh, and uh, it took me longer than you've been there, to, to begin to think that I was seeing issues coming around for the second time uh, so that I actually uh, had some background. Uh, I, uh, and uh, yes. I, I will tell you the, uh, what I used to say about the job. I said, I don't know what's worse, having an engineer tell me what the law is or going back to my office and spending four hours doing the research and discovering he's right. Right, exactly. They, so it's, it's um, really talented people who understand the legal environment that they're operating in, uh, uh, and because they've been doing it for longer than the general counsel, often better than the general counsel himself. So it's um, it is daunting, uh, and if I let myself uh, sort of wallow in that a little bit, I, I have a little bit of self pity, realizing <laughs> that I've gotten myself into something way over my head. And uh, it, it's technically complicated. It's legally complicated. We can talk a little bit more about the role of the general counsel generally. But uh, but it, it's a complex, uh, difficult, challenging environment. Not Again, not complaining, but I've, I've certainly bitten off a little more than I can chew. Um, that's offset by the fact, uh, Stu, I've got to be honest and say that it's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's it, corny as it sounds. It's a real privilege to have the position. Yeah. Um, I wasn't necessarily looking for something of this of this nature upon retirement, uh, so I got very lucky. Um, and I, I distinctly recall a few days after, or a couple of weeks after I started, I um, found myself at a congressional hearing with uh, the heads of the FBI and CIA and others and other luminaries in the in the uh, in the national security field. And I was just sort of almost having to pinch myself with the excitement of being in, in this in this situation being privileged to, to to be there and I went up to one of them and said uh, you know I um, this is really just fascinating I consider myself very lucky and I I, I can't believe uh, I'm getting paid for this and he quickly shot back neither can we uh, so, uh, uh, okay, so, I, so that so would I, be Bob Litt. So, so, so I, no, it wasn't Bob. So I, so I haven't so I haven't used that line to gloat anymore. So I'm going to have to work on something else. But uh, but it is fascinating. Yeah, and and the office is considerably larger than when I was there uh, because uh, the regulations are considerably more uh, um, demanding and the legalization of signals intelligence continues apace. Uh, um, Any surprises about the people you're working with day-to-day in the office? 
again, tackle what I said earlier about the surprise. I mean, it's the caliber of the people. So mm-hmm. we've got um, the office. Uh, maybe I can spend a little time talking about the office. So, so in terms of the caliber of the people, they're terrific. We've got people from uh, uh, a wide range of, of law schools. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've got uh, people who have, have uh, private sector backgrounds, uh, public public sector backgrounds, et cetera. Uh, a rich diversity. We do try to rotate people around so we get a mixture of experience. It's organized a little bit like uh, any uh, large corporate uh, general counsel's office in the sense that, you know, um, we're we're the the chief lawyers for an organization of over 40,000 people. So anytime you have that large uh, group, uh, let alone one that's in government and in a specialized area, you're going to have a, an entire range of issues coming up. Uh, uh, whether it's personnel and human resources issues, uh, real estate questions, uh, patent questions, uh, as well as the obvious in intelligence law questions that are unique to our to our uh, mission. I recall in the early when we were in the early days, I was flummoxed by getting a a legal issue over a federal parking permit, and I, I didn't even think there could be such a thing as a legal issue over a federal, <laughs> federal parking ticket, but apparently there was. Um, so, so the, uh, my comment is simply that the, the breadth of issues that the general counsel's office uh, undertakes is is quite extensive. There are some terrific people. We've organized into six areas that uh, in each with a with an associate general counsel that oversees it. So it's organized a little bit like a traditional uh, corporate law firm office, but obviously with a very specialized role. So, the, the, speaking of reorganization, the um, NSA 21 has been publicly announced. Uh, there's going to be a reorganization of NSA itself. It's attracted a certain amount of controversy. I won't say a lot uh, uh, by people who say you shouldn't. Uh, the, the agency shouldn't combine uh, uh, the defensive and offensive missions, uh, which will be part of will be. Uh, Integrated, uh, um, there is going to be an engagement office, one of the top six offices that uh, um, uh, reflects the fact that NSA can no longer be no such agency. It's going to have to defend itself, uh, as you did uh, in uh, uh, going public with your early uh, views on uh, 215. Um, what's it going to mean for the general counsel's office? So. The agency has announced uh, something called NSA 21, and the 21 refers to the 21st century, which is what this is all about. It's about the future, um, and uh, any self-respecting organization, whether it's in the private sector or government, uh, is going to look at look at itself periodically, reassess it itself, uh, decide whether it's up to the internal and external challenges, and that's exactly what NSA did. I joined when I joined the agency was already well along in that process. Uh, several months into it, so I joined only in the last sort of third of that process. But it, again, I I did have some influence on it. Uh, one of the things I was keen to make sure of and was and was uh, and was immediately reassured was that the that the office of the general counsel, to more specifically answer your question, um, is large is largely as a unit unaffected by this mm-hmm. organization. Um, it remains intact. Uh, I, uh, as the general counsel, still report directly to the director, which is very important to me, and I think yeah. sends a strong signal to the rest of the organization as well as the world generally uh, that, that uh, adherence to the rule of law is a very, very important uh, aspect of, of what we do. Um, and it's actually um, been uh, memorialized even more with this new organization in that without going into the boring details, uh, part of this organization involves setting up a, a senior group, sort of like a, a committee that will that will effectively be handling the sort of day-to-day operations uh, of, of the of the organization. And the general counsel is expressly made a member of that group, which is the first time in the in the organization's uh, history that we've we've done that. And again, that just helps underscore the, the role of, of lawyers in the organization. So so the, the narrow question of of uh, is the is the office of the general counsel affected by the um, the reorganization? Is is the answer is it's largely unaffected, but if anything, it's strengthened. Um, the organization as a whole, to go back to your uh, comment also about combining offense and defense, and again, we don't those aren't terms we use, but I understand that's what the popular press talks about. You know, it's important to recognize that they're already combined. I mean, the, the Admiral Rogers, as the head of NSA, has the legal responsibility for dealing both with the cyber assurance side of 
of the uh, legal requirements as well as the foreign intelligence uh, surveillance uh, side of the of the legal requirements. So we're all right, and, and Admiral Rogers has both jobs, so we can't say I'll right. do one and not another. Uh, we'll do one on Monday and another on Tuesday. That's not going to happen. Uh, so uh, exactly how we organize internally, uh, you know, you could you could debate one way or the other. We think, given the challenges now, and given the the way you can inform yourself about cybersecurity by having more of a sense of what's happening in, on the foreign intelligence side, we think that makes sense. Uh, they are mutually supportive. They already work closely together anyway, and so I think this is this is the right step. Yeah, I, I, the idea there is, to my mind, there's there is a difference in personality between people who are mostly focused on information assurance and people who are mostly uh, focused on signals intelligence. Just as there's a big difference in personality between linebackers and offensive linemen. Uh, but they're uh, all on the same team. They are on the same right. team. Right. And um, increasingly, I, at least I'm of the view, that you can't have effective defense unless you can track the people who are attacking you and make them regret having done so. Uh, and that is a classic signals intelligence uh, uh, job. Uh, uh, and so uh, integration of the ability to determine who's attacking us and why and how we can deter them, uh, all of that allows us to integrate um, offense and defense in a, uh, a what I think is a, the only effective way. So let me ask about... Um, the, what I suspect will be your biggest um, priority for uh, shaping the future environment uh, uh, legally, uh, which is uh, the reauthorization of Section 702. We've talked about that. David Chris came on, uh, gave a great overview of what he thought were the issues uh, that the uh, um, had been raised in the debate. Uh, he predicted, I predict, I think everyone predicts that uh, 702, given its value, is going to be reauthorized, but it could easily be tweaked. Uh, and uh, one of the things I asked him about is what would you change that you haven't yet heard about? And he said, I think we have to reconsider the idea that simply telling telephone companies that transiting communications are something that we can legally intercept, that is to say, foreign-to-foreign communications that happen to touch the United States and have a cup of coffee at one of our routers uh, uh, can be intercepted as long as you know they're foreign-to-foreign. That's clearly legal. The question is whether NSA or the U.S. government needs the authority to issue an intercept order that is binding on the ISPs and the telcos that are carrying that traffic. So before we get into the the details of the question, which is you know a, a good one, let's just uh, take a step back for for your listeners in the podcast here um, on 702. And um, so this is a very important statute that um, uh, is part, as you well know, of the uh, FISA amendments of 2008. Uh, which introduced a series of new sections to to FISA, which itself was what a 19 late 70s era statute, um, partly to deal with really technological changes that, mm-hmm. that had, had intervened over the years. Um, and 702 uh, is the intelligence community has said publicly and in, to, to Congress in closed hearings as well as publicly uh, is is a vital part. In, Arguably, if not the one of the most vital uh, tools that we have in our arsenal, uh, and and what it does in in very succinct terms is authorize uh, the government to undertake surveillance to target, in the words of the statute, but to undertake surveillance of foreigners located outside the United States. Mm-hmm. So, more specifically, uh, we're allowed under the statute to target. Uh, um, people who are not United States persons who are reasonably believed, in the words of the statute, uh, to be outside the United States. So it's not about uh, um, bulk surveillance of everybody uh, or or whatever. It's not indiscriminate. Uh, It's focusing on uh, foreigners located outside. And there are a lot of steps associated with... So the classic classic example would be two guys in Yemen who are sending email to each other using Hotmail. Exactly. So it's uh, it's looking at, at both... We can look at both... Telephone information, uh, as well as um, as well as uh, emails, we can look at both metadata as well as the content, mm-hmm. and uh, this is proven useful in tracking uh, bad guys in ISIL and and, and elsewhere. 
so it's it's a vital tool. Um, it's been publicly reported that um, much of the information, it, it's a big factor in NSA's general signal intelligence information. And um, uh, it's been publicly reported that a, that a lot of the information uh, is so important that it finds itself in the way in the, in, into the president's daily brief. So it's a, it's a vital tool. Um, that section, which authorizes us to do this, this basically foreign surveillance, uh, comes up for renewal at the end of December in 2017. So, mm-hmm. what less than two years away from now. Um, uh, there are some people in Congress who would like to try to get it reauthorized before then rather than do what Congress seems to have done. That would be a good idea. In the, last, <laughs> the last few years of waiting till the absolute last second and then some to deal with some legislation. So it would be nice if it was able to be considered in an orderly way mm-hmm. and, uh, and reauthorized. And to that end, uh, the the... Congress has already started some preliminary hearings on that. Uh, they've been closed so far just because of, because of the nature of the, uh, the, the of, of, of the detailed discussion that has to occur. And I was present at, uh, at a couple of those closed hearings already, and, the, and many of the members of Congress are being educated on it and, and understand exactly what the program does, what the safeguards are, <laughs> many, many extensive safeguards that are built into it. So there's a, there's a bit of an education campaign that's going to go on over the next year. I think just my personal view is that it's probably unrealistic uh, to think that in the presidential year this will be able to get this addressed. That's just my personal view, not an official agency view, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But we certainly would like to work with Congress and make sure that it gets addressed promptly. Um, as to what changes will be made in the program, if any, very hard to t- say. Um, you mentioned one that's been talked about. Uh, the the it's no secret that the the uh, privacy groups um, uh, who are concerned about the extent and reach of Section 702 have talked about uh, uh, the, the the question of so-called U.S. person queries of the databases mm-hmm. that we have and then the restrictions associated with that. Um, there are some other. Uh, questions about the extent of so-called upstream collection, where we look at look at um, information that, that crosses the internet backbone, uh, uh, etc. So, so the, there there are some questions that will have to be answered. We're, we're happy to work our way through them. We're pretty confident that uh, we've got some very uh, not necessarily good answers, although we have that too. But more importantly, we we really think we can demonstrate the value of this program right. to Congress and to the American public. And frankly, as the general counsel, that's going to be one of my important tasks. And, um, well, let me ask about, uh, you, you can refuse to answer if you like, have, have we gone to a provider and said uh, it's legal for you to provide us access to transiting communications and had them say, yeah, but we don't choose to? Well, I am going to take advantage of your, your offer, <laughs> and we can go to the next question. Okay. <laughs> Too bad. Okay. So um, the uh, uh, the privacy shield discussion, uh, we now have a, uh, a, a an alleged agreement that's uh, still not quite implemented, and it's not clear when it will be, uh, but there clearly has been a European determination that because of NSA's activities, they want to impose new restrictions on uh, transfers of data to the United States. And they asked for a lot of assurances. Uh, um, What kind of assurances can NSA provide to the Europeans about uh, its practices that actually would conform to what the European Court of Justice has demanded? So this is, uh, again, another one of these matters that I uh, was had the good fortune of sort of jumping into right in the middle of things. Uh, this, is, this has been a series of long negotiations going back over a period of time about data transfers back and forth, uh, largely following the, the Snowden disclosures where the Europeans got quite concerned and agitated uh, over what they perceived as the extent of surveillance. Um, but it culminated in uh, something that occurred I guess back in, I think, October, which was a decision of the European Court of Justice to strike down um, one of the permitted means by which data was transferred from Europe to uh, to the United States under something called the Safe Harbor Regime. <laughs> and um, the, the court's opinion basically said uh, that, uh, not, not necessarily that there was something bad intrinsically about the Safe Harbor Regime, but more that uh, in adopting it, 
the European Commission did not make adequate findings that there was sufficient protection about the data being transferred uh, that, that, would, that would permit them to, to, to go ahead and approve safe harbor. So it was more about the process. But that, in turn, was premised on what I think was really a faulty view of uh, the extent of United States surveillance, very much shaped by, uh, I think it was the Advocate General's, I'm not sure the European, the exact title of the European uh, uh, right, the, the guy who writes the sort of draft who wrote, opinion. Who wrote, who wrote right. the opinion, the Advocate General, I may have the wrong title. But if you looked at that opinion, it was sort of based on that old Washington Post story that was later retracted about the extent of surveillance back in... And, uh, and some clippings from The Guardian, exactly which, uh, so as I have said, I wouldn't rely on for the weather report. Yeah, but <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, I think that that opinion, uh, again, in my personal view, um, was, 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 was misguided. I think it... it it uh, helped shape the debate in, a, in the wrong way, but we are where we are, and the Europeans did um, did, did come back and say they were they were concerned about U.S. surveillance, and therefore they, we needed to renegotiate something. So the Commerce Department uh, has been has taken the lead of this, mm-hmm. uh, along with the State Department, um, in negotiating a, a new safe harbor uh, regime, which is now called Privacy Shield. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been informally agreed to by the two governments, uh, by the negotiators of the two governments. Um, but has not yet been formally adopted by the European Union. The, um, the Article 29 Working Party of data uh, officials in, um, in, in Europe is going to have their own say on it, and ultimately will have to be approved or not, as the case may be, hopefully will be approved. There are a lot of U.S. companies that would like to see it approved, and, and the U.S. government would too. Uh, to get more specific to your question about the role of the intelligence community in it, um, the, uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence uh, was, was heavily involved in leading a response to the Europeans on uh, describing the extent of surveillance uh, that, that is undertaken and the safeguards associated with that. And um, uh, Bob Litt, whose name you mentioned earlier, who's the general counsel of, uh, of ODNI, was, was one of the leaders in this and did a, did a great job. And what the United States government did, really for the first time, is spell out in an, in an extensive document the nature of the surveillance in an, un, in an unclassified form, uh, the nature of the surveillance that the United States government takes, the reasons for it, and most importantly, the restrictions on it involving everything from our statutes to PPD 28, Presidential Policy <laughs> Directive 28, which, which, which in effect help extend some protections to non-U.S. citizens and, and put limits on the nature of surveillance. Um, and we provided these in, a, in sort of a written description, written assurances to the Europeans of what the safeguards are, what the extent was, and the Europeans said, uh, thank you, well, this is very helpful, we, we appreciate this is useful, and this, this enables us to reach a decision that we feel more comfortable with this arrangement. So I, I'm not a big fan of PPD 28. I think it's, uh, you know, the idea that we uh, are protecting people's sexual preference uh, uh, in some special way uh, uh, is foolish. That, that might turn out to be really important intelligence. Uh, uh, and so if I were advising the new president, I'd say, uh, yeah, you ought to just get rid of it. Uh, does the reliance on PPD 28 in the uh, communications to uh, the Europeans mean that that could have uh, uh, that could be difficult or impossible uh, for a new president. Well, I, I don't think PPD 28 was the only basis on which the uh, the discussions uh, with the Europeans advanced. Um, so uh, I, and I'm not, I can't engage in the number one. I wasn't involved in the negotiations, but it would be folly for me to. Engage in the hypothetical of if we took PPD 28 out right. of the equation, what, what that means, I, I don't know. But um, but uh, uh, there there have been extensive discussions with the Europeans. I think they understand the safeguards we have, which are which which are over and above uh, PPD right. 28. And uh, you know, my, my hope would be that, uh, that 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 the Europeans would 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 find that to be uh, to be adequate. Um, you know, the, well, it's, the, the, it's certainly the, better than the, their governments give to their citizens. Well, <laughs> you know, there, there have been a bunch of press reports um, about uh, questioning: Are the Europeans focusing unfairly on the U.S.? Should they be looking at data transfers? With oh, other that, of course, that's true. So, they they, so they always do. A, so there's there's just there's there's certainly a lot to talk about in that area. So I want to. Uh, get you uh, out of here on uh, the okay. schedule I promised, but uh, um, 
two things that uh, we ought to talk about that came up in our last uh, uh, podcast, uh, which hasn't yet been released. Uh, one, Apple, uh, at the Beer Summit, uh, one of our uh, um, questioners said, NSA and Cyber Command spent hundreds of millions of dollars getting ready to take down uh, uh, Iranian infrastructure. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. Uh, a, surely they could help the FBI get into a single iPhone. Um, and uh, it was a fair question. I, I, I tried to answer that, but I thought I'd give you a chance to talk about uh, that and anything else you'd like to say about the Apple controversy. Well, the Apple controversy is, uh, I, w- I was surprised to see that it's front page. It, it, uh, on, on, on day after day. So many days. And so it, it, uh, it, it's obviously caught uh, people's attention um, in, a, in a way that uh, I honestly didn't expect just because it's sort of a technical topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can spend a minute or two on, uh, on sort of the broader question of encryption and going dark, et cetera. But um, on, on the Apple case itself, well, uh, just the the narrow question is, you know, we're we NSA is not involved in this particular right. uh, case. This is an this is an FBI law enforcement case. Uh, we're not involved in domestic issues, um, and uh, uh, so that's just uh, I'm not I can't really comment on the specifics of the of the the Apple case uh, in, in particular or the Apple phone itself. I I mean as as I, I'll just say as a as a lawyer and you and I are lawyers and you know it'll be interesting to see whether the the All Writs Act, of, uh, which actually predates, interestingly, predates the adoption of the Bill of Rights in the Fourth Amendment. I guess that's um, right, yeah. Uh, by, by a couple of years, by about two years. Um, it's interesting to see whether that, just as lawyers, whether, you know, the extent of that statute, and Apple's got its view, the U.S. government has its view, and again, I'm not, not going to get involved in that. Um, but I, I do want to say a couple things. Um, well, I want to say one thing about, about that case, which is it's not about encryption. The Apple case is not about encryption. It's about um, the fact that Apple has, in effect, uh, for reasons they believe appropriate, uh, built sort of a safe mm-hmm. lock around their phone and uh, of their own doing, and the government is coming and saying, would you please, in, in effect, help help us get into the phone, and we'll, we want to get to the content of the phone. So uh, I'll just say, simply say it's not about encryption. Um, it's a little bit about the, the mission impossible, uh, this message will self-destruct in, in ten tries. Uh, um, and that, uh, the FBI is trying to prevent the self-destruction of the data uh, if it um, guesses too many passwords. Right. And also there's another feature in it, which is that uh, Apple phones, um, and I'm not sure if this, this one does it because I don't know which particular Apple phone this is, but some, some of the newer Apple phones have a system in it where each time you put in a, a wrong password, you're not allowed to put in the next password for a longer period of time, mm-hmm. so there's a delay. So if you're trying to uh, crack a code, you need to take more time. So, so it's again, it's, it's a, gets into a technical topic. And um, can't NSA just help the FBI with all these things, or is that is it really just too hard for NSA, or is it a matter of uh, uh, legal authorities and restrictions? Well, it's it's mostly a matter of legal authorities and restrictions. Again, uh, while NSA has certain rights to provide technical assistance uh, to the FBI and other units in government, and we do that on, on occasion, and we've got some fabulous engineers and mathematicians and others who are who are technically proficient, and there there are formal ways of providing technical assistance to the Department of Homeland Security, which we mm-hmm. do all the time, the FBI, etc. Um, we're not involved in 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 uh, the, the domestic law enforcement issues right. also, so we're not we're not we're not involved in that. So uh, last, this will be the last topic, sure. okay. and it is uh, something that I had nothing to do with, that, uh, no familiarity with uh, when I was at NSA, which was the um, emergence of Cyber Command, uh, mm-hmm. and Cyber Command uh, does work closely with NSA, but it is quite separate, uh, and I wondered uh, if you could talk a little bit about the complexity of, um, well, uh, uh, my uh, suggestion, not yours, the Nitro Zoo story suggests that uh, uh, large parts of NSA were devoted to 
laying the groundwork for possible attacks on Iran uh, uh, because of the crisis over uh, uh, nuclear enrichment. Uh, And uh, that means that NSA legal authorities, NSA employees had to be used alongside Cyber Command to prepare for possible uh, uh, war. Um, That's the background. I'll only ask you, how does NSA and NSA GC work with the legal advisors at Cyber Command? How are the legal issues the same, and how are they different? So um, I'll revert to my opening comment about um, being authorized to say very little and knowing even less, and that, that applies to the whole uh, nitro Zeus campaign, which obviously uh, um, I, I'm not, not going to discuss, and, and it, it refers to matters that predate my involvement. So... Um, uh, but on Cyber Command, Cyber Command is U.S. Cyber Command is now a, uh, a unit within the United States Strategic Command uh, that is now, I guess, a little over five years old, mm-hmm. if I recall. And it's uh, it's housed with NSA. It's co-located with NSA. Um, uh, the men and women of Cyber Command work hand in hand with the, the people at at. Uh, at NSA. Their mission is different. They're completely separate legal authorities. They're a military entity. They're both focused on um, uh, uh, cyber assurance and protecting U.S. military uh, networks as well as they have the legal authority uh, to engage in offensive uh, uh, operations, in other words, uh, take action against adversaries. Uh, in a milita- in, under military authorities. Uh, that's not the case for NSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, NSA is, uh, while it does have very important statutory duties um, to defend the national security system, which includes everything from the president's nuclear command control to uh, vital, uh, vital uh, communication systems of the Department of Defense, um, we have no authority and do not engage in anything offensive, so to speak, in that in that in that sense. So, uh, so there are very clear lines of authority, and, and everyone understands that there's that, that's not a complicated area. Um, we, in this particular case right now, uh, both uh, Cyber Command and uh, NSA have the same boss, which is Admiral Rogers, who was dual hatted as as the head of both organizations. Um, and right now, at least at this stage of uh, Cyber Command's. Uh, uh, Situation where it's still growing and still getting getting organized and getting established. Uh, I think that's that's uh, very appropriate because we have a lot of interaction. We we assist them as appropriate and they assist us as appropriate. Um, I have very close relations with the um, with uh, Colonel Corn, who's uh, the staff uh, uh, judge advocate, uh, mm-hmm. basically their general counsel in effect. And we regularly work work together, so um, relations are good, um, and and I'm I'm very happy with that situation. Well, very good. I uh, I think we're coming to the end of the uh, time we have, but I always offer uh, to our uh, guests uh, the opportunity to talk about uh, events, speeches uh, uh, that they have coming up that uh, they'd like people to know about. Uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to your first testimony uh, uh, before uh, for Congress, or your next testimony probably. Uh, but is there anything that uh, our listeners would uh, want to know that's coming up? Well, thank you. No. Uh, well, first of all, it's going to take me a while to recover from this. Um, but uh, but uh, more importantly, um, uh, I, I'm, uh, as, as, I'm as still relatively new in the position, and what I'd like to do, uh, and I've said this to uh, others in the agency, is, is wait a few more months and then start um, trying to be one of the people at the agency who uh, gets out uh, more into the public and speaks at least on legal topics. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that we try to demystify some of what we're doing. Uh, the intelligence community has adopted some transparency principles, which I think are very important. Obviously, there's a lot of classified information we can't get into, but I, I very much, very much want to use uh, my role as well as the occasion of the 702 authorization campaign and other things to try to get out um, a little more over the ensuing year or two uh, in, in a public arena and make uh, appropriate comments, uh, as I said, with a legal focus, but but. I think there's definitely some engagement that we can do. I think it's critical now. It's quite clear that uh, um, just saying we obey the law or adding, piling more legal requirements on uh, uh, NSA is not going to reassure the American public. They, uh, They want more sense that they 
see what's going on, know what's going on, at least at some level, uh, uh, and uh, have control over it. And also they, they need to see, frankly, when those controls cause problems for the agency in carrying out its mission. Uh, it's only when the, the American people see that there are real problems with adding new controls on uh, intelligence that we will uh, uh, see a reduction in, in the burden of those controls. So thank you so much. This was terrific. Thank you. Uh, and I am, I'm delighted. I'm pleased to know that uh, the NSA OGC is in such good hands. And uh, I will invite you back um, uh, uh, in a year or so when you've had a chance to uh, acquire uh, uh, more gray hair as a result of your decisions and uh, uh, travail. Well, thank you. I, you're you're uh, presupposing that I'll pass my probationary period, which I'm looking forward to. So uh, I'll, <laughs> if, if I do that, I'll definitely accept your offer. Thank you, Stuart. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much to Glenn Gerstel and to Michael Vattis, Alan Cohn, Stephen Heifetz uh, for participating in the 102nd uh, episode of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, uh, we're open to feedback, as always. If you want to send uh, your comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, next week, we'll be joined by Phil Reidinger, uh, uh, who is a former uh, DHS cybersecurity official who now is running something called the Global Cybersecurity Alliance, which he'll be talking about. Uh, uh, we'll also be hearing from uh, uh, two leaders of the Bitcoin industry uh, in future editions. Uh, and then on March 3rd, for those of you who are going to be in RSA, we'll be doing this podcast live from the floor of RSA. So so please come visit us then, and uh, uh, no ripe fruit, but uh, questions afterwards would be welcome. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us there and elsewhere as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.